You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil. Or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. So Bob Dylan penned those words in 1979, wound up winning a Grammy Award. It enjoyed a a good run in the top 40, uh, and in fact, a lot of other artists actually wound up covering that song. For sure, it's a catchy lyric, it's a fun tune, but I think that song became such a profound hit because it articulates one of the basic inevitable truths of life that no matter who you are, you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, Bob Dylan wasn't the first to say it. In fact, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we see that this is one of those basic inevitable truths of life that we find in the Bible, that no matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter what we've done, no matter anything about our lives, we're going to have to make a choice to serve somebody, and that's life. I want to welcome all of you at the Crossroads campus, at the Highland Park campus, those of you here at the Lake Forest campus, excited to have the 01 service combined in here with the sanctuary. It's a lot of fun having the energy in the room of the different congregations gathered together as we look at this idea that there are things in life that are just inevitable. Lots of things, small things, big things. A lot of times they're not good things, but they're just things that come with life and we just go, well, that's life. Some of them are tough. Like in this life, if you have a basement, sooner or later it's going to get wet. You get something new that's perfect, sooner or later it's going to get scratched or dented or wrecked. You know, these things happen. That's life. And then there are other things that are part of life where we get to experience something that we think is just the essence of life. Like we get to go to a beach or a lake or overlook a mountain range and we go, ah, now that's what life is about. That's life. Now, it's been a lot of fun seeing the texts and emails that I've been getting from some of you in response to last week's sermon. The first one I got was Sunday afternoon. It was three brothers from our Crossroads campus kicking up their feet on the edge of their bed playing Xbox. Hashtag, that's life. So, all right. I saw some pictures of some feet probably at the Lake Bluff or Lake Forest or one of the other beachfronts around here kicked up saying, ah, hashtag, that's life. And yes, in case you're wondering, my wife and I got to Ravinia this week, so we kicked our feet up on a blanket, snapped a picture, cheese and crackers, classical music, outdoors on a perfect sunny summer evening. Hey, what could be better? That's life. 
So in this series, we're tackling four of the major inevitabilities of life, and we're asking, what difference does a relationship with God make? What difference does a relationship with God make in these major areas of life that are inevitably going to come our way? And my goal each week is for us to have a different perspective, one that shifts from discouragement or defeat in some of these areas where we just go, oh, that's life, to one of victory and confidence where we can say, you know what, with a relationship with God, now that's life. That's the perspective shift we want to be looking at. And to do that, we're going to be looking into the middle section of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is one of the larger books in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, giving instruction to the early church, people who were just coming to this understanding of what Jesus had done for them and and working this out in life. And so the middle section, Romans 5 through 8, is where we're focusing our attention in this series. And we're doing that because they so clearly contrast the life and hope that we find in Jesus Christ. That's where we discover life with God versus the sin and death and brokenness that are a part of the world that we live in. Clear contrast between these two different worldviews. And last week we looked at Romans chapter 5 and we saw how death became a part of life. You remember that. Benjamin Franklin was the one who said it. In this world there are no certainties but death and taxes. And so we looked at this idea that death is inevitably a part of of life, and it came to us because sin entered the world through Adam. We realize sin's not a popular idea in our culture, but it's so clearly a part of the biblical worldview that says there was a time in history where sin came in, and that's why everything moves toward death. But we saw how in Jesus Christ, the curse of death is broken because of the gift of life for all who would become associated with Jesus Christ by faith. So the world is under a curse of death, but the gift of life through Jesus is more powerful, and it can change our perspective so that death for you and me, when it inevitably comes one day, doesn't have to be the end. But instead, it's only the beginning of an eternity of life with God because it is not death to die when we discover life with God. So death is an inevitability. And this morning we're going to look at another inevitability of life, and it's this idea of servanthood. It's what Bob Dylan said, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're going to have to serve somebody. Now just because a popular musician said it doesn't mean everybody agrees with this idea. In fact, a few years after that song became so popular, John Lennon of the Beatles said that song is an embarrassment. And he wrote a song called serve yourself. And his tagline was, you got to serve yourself because ain't nobody going to do it for you. So just because this idea is popularized even in culture doesn't mean everybody agrees with it. And that may be you this morning. You go, yeah, I don't know about this serving somebody. I'm doing just fine serving myself. And if that's you, I want to invite you in particular to think about what we find in the scriptures that challenge that idea And really drive home this inevitability of life that we're going to serve one master or another. And what's on us is to choose. 
So that's what we're going after this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn in a Bible to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles uh, around you in our sanctuaries. Uh, Also, there's probably a a Bible on your phone or your device. So you could turn that on if you have an option to choose different translations. You could choose the New International Version. That's what I'm reading from today. I want to invite us to look together at some of the language that emerges in Romans chapter 6 to help us get our minds around this idea that in this life we're going to have to serve Somebody, And we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to pull out phrases um, from this chapter that describe two different masters. So in a similar way that Romans chapter 5 presents two corporate identities, Adam and all who are associated with him, Jesus and all who are associated with him, two corporate identities that define everyone in the world, either the race of Adam or the race of of Christ. In a similar way, Romans 6 presents us with two masters. Two masters. And it takes up this idea of sin again. And this time sin is presented as a master that you and I might serve. And then there's the second master of righteousness that you and I might choose to serve. And then it presents the contrast between the two. We see this most clearly right in the middle of the chapter in verse 16. In verse 16 it says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Couldn't be much clearer of a statement than that, right? He he speaks to his audience, he speaks to us in effect as if to say, don't you know this is just a fact of life that whoever you choose to obey, that's the one you are serving and it could be sin or it could be obedience which leads to righteousness and he frames this using the concept of slavery. Now that's a big word, that's a loaded word word. And and so before we dig too deeply into these contrasts between being a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, I just want to comment a little bit about slavery in this New Testament context. So what was the context of slavery in first century Rome in which we're we're reading this chapter? So Dan Wallace, a biblical scholar, if, if you're a student of the Bible and you go to any sort of seminaries or colleges to study the Bible, Dan Wallace is one of the folks that helps you understand the context of the, the, the New, New Testament and early Rome and, and the language that's being used uh, that was originally written in the scriptures. And, and he talks about this idea of slavery in the context of the New Testament. And it's very different than what might come to mind for you and me when we think of slavery in early American history or slavery that's in various parts of the world right now. This idea of just of cruel oppression is what usually comes to our mind and rightfully so. But that's not necessarily the context that we find when Paul talks about slavery and applies it to the idea of sin or to righteousness. The word that's translated here as slave is most commonly referred to something that would be called a bond servant. It's this idea that in the culture someone could voluntarily sell themselves as a slave to someone else, sort of a willful contractual servanthood that was called bondservant, or in this case is translated slave. Other ways that people came into slavery might be through the spoils of war. So one nation conquered another, took captives into slavery. 
Another way would be if someone was indebted to someone. They might be sentenced to be a slave to pay off their debt. So slavery happened in in, in several different contexts, but it wasn't driven primarily by this motivation of a superiority or of oppressing a certain ethnicity. There were various practical ways that slavery came to be. And in the context of Rome, for the most part, slaves were treated with dignity, with respect. They were able to hold jobs. They were able to accumulate wealth. Uh, they, They typically were treated with a measure of human dignity by their masters. In fact, most slaves were set free within a seven-year period of entering into that contractual agreement. And it was very common, most common in the Roman culture, for a slave to be set free by the time they were 30 years old. So it was a very different idea of slavery than one that you and I may think of. Now, I don't want to overstate it. It was not perfect. And if you know your history, Spartacus led a rebellion in 73 BC that caused Rome to re quite oppressive of slaves under their empire. And yes, there were exceptions to the rule, so I don't want to paint it with too broad a brush, but in general, in this context, when we think of this idea of slavery, it's this idea of voluntary servanthood, and that's certainly what we find in Romans 6 and verse 16. He talks about offering yourselves to someone to obey as slaves. And in that offering, in that voluntary offering, we become a servant to the one that we obey. And he says that could either be a slavery to sin or a slavery to righteousness. So let's see what unfolds as this contrast emerges between these two choices, between these two masters. The implication is clear. We can and must choose whom we will serve. So it unfolds in several different ways, and it emerges in several different verses in the chapter. But I want to, what I want to see first is what sin as our master looks like. In Romans 6, we see what life is like serving sin as our master. And the first thing we see is that it's a life that's ruled by corruption. It's a life that's ruled by corruption. Look in verse 12. Verse 12 says, in the same way, count yourselves Verse 11, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12, it says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So there's this idea that there's a rule, there's a reign of sin that, that is driven by evil desires or corruption. And so it's a corruption that, that is harmful to us, it's harmful to others around us. And I don't know about you, um, but I think this is so true in so many areas of life, both small and large. Who among us naturally wants to do what's best for us? Like, I'll take Doritos any day over celery. I would much rather sit in front of a television than go out and go running, right? So there, there are all sorts of things that, that we would rather do. I'd rather sleep in than get up early. I'd rather read sports news than read my Bible. I would rather have a conversation with a friend than pray. All sorts of just regular daily habits that, that we do that sort of aren't the best for us. We don't always make that choice, and it, and it drags us down. It sort of corrupts us as well as it doesn't do any favors to those around us. And I think we all experience this in our lives. Now, we had such fun last week turning and sharing some of our that's life moments in the service that I want to I pull this on you again just to help us 
get our minds around this idea that in life, yeah, we, we feel this rule of corruption, of doing things that aren't the best for us. We all have guilty pleasures. So whether you're here in the Lake Forest Sanctuary or you're over at Crossroads or Highland Park, I'm, I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to invite you to turn to somebody near you. Maybe it's a friend or family member or somebody you don't even know that you could introduce yourself to. And I want you to share with them one of your guilty pleasures, something in your life that you know is not good for you. You know it's not the best thing. You know you'd better do something else. But man, you just keep doing that thing because, oh, it feels so good. Take 30 seconds to share, and then I want you to trade and hear from the person that you're talking to. Go. All right, if you haven't heard from the person you're talking to, go ahead and trade places and hear the other person's guilty pleasure. We all do it, right? We all have things in our life that we know is not good for us. But boy, we are just ruled by corruption. We keep coming back to that thing. And of course... There are more serious examples. Much easier to tear people down than to build them up. Much easier to seek our good at the expense of others than to live in a sacrificial way for the good of others. It's much easier and more natural to want revenge on those who have wronged us rather than to forgive. It's more natural for us to hate rather than to love. In this life, we see this rule of corruption coming at us in all sorts of ways, pulling us in this kind of slavery to sin. But slavery to sin shows up in other ways in this chapter. Look in verse 19. In verse 19, Paul explains why he's even using slavery at all. And he says, I put all of this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. And then he says, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. So when he's describing the pull of slavery to sin, he talks about categories of impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. When we serve sin as our master, we're controlled by addiction. Several weeks ago in the Unstuck series, we talked about the power of addiction when we looked at Samson, one of the most famous characters in the Old Testament, and how it eventually led to his destruction. And it's because of this increasing power of addiction where one act is not enough and leads to more and more and more, eventually leading to our own destruction and oftentimes those around us. Whatever kind of addiction it is, whether it's a food or alcohol addiction, whether it's a gambling addiction, a sex addiction, an addiction to power or control or some other insatiable craving, our self-serving appetites just keep growing and growing and growing 
as long as we keep feeding them. When we're a slave to sin, we're ruled by corruption. We're controlled by addiction. A third thing emerges. We see this in verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. So slavery to sin has this certain freedom, not controlled at all by righteousness. When we're slaves to sin, we're unrestrained by conscience, unrestrained by conscience. We we, we don't have that guard that pulls us back, that tells us, no, lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, murder, Where do we get into all these things? It's because that conscience has been seared and we're unrestrained by this sense of what is right. In the New Testament book of James, we find this idea that anger works in the exact opposite direction of righteousness. James says, therefore, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all the filth and evil that is so prevalent prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you. So in terms of our emotions and, and being unrestrained by righteousness, anger is one of these emotions that continues to grow as long as we feed it. That's why the scriptures say, don't go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it. Have a short account. Because when we give in to these kinds of pulls, we become unrestrained by conscience. And that's what happens in slavery to sin. Ruled by corruption, controlled by addiction, unrestrained by conscience, weighed down by guilt and shame. We see this in verse 21. Paul says, what benefit did you reap at that time, that is at the time you were enslaved to sin, from the things that you are now ashamed of? of. Slavery to sin weighs us down with guilt, with shame. And the last thing I want to point out is that ultimately, when we follow this path of slavery to sin, the scriptures tell us we are condemned to die. The last verse in the chapter says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you don't have to live long before you begin to experience some combination of these effects of sin. We may not understand it as sin. We may not like to label it as sin. We may resist this idea that the Bible is telling me the truth about myself. But the fact of the matter is we see this happen in our lives to some degree inevitably. That's what it means to be born into Adam. That's the curse of death that we talked about in Romans 5. It comes to all of us, and we don't have to live long before we see it showing up in our lives. We have all been slaves to sin. But the good news is, today, we have freedom to serve a new master. Today, we have freedom to serve a new master. Master. And so 
alongside these descriptions of what it's like to be pulled into sin as a slave, we see vivid descriptions of this new freedom that comes when we make a choice not to be a slave to sin, but to be a slave to righteousness, to obedience, and to see what that is like. In Romans 6, we also see what life is like serving righteousness as our master. And the first thing I want to point out is that as a servant of righteousness, we are free to live a new life in unity with Jesus. We're free to live a new life that's different from the old life because we've been united with Jesus. And we see this described in verses 3 through 7. Verses 3 through 7. So back toward the beginning of the chapter, we find these words. The Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Just as Jesus died and was raised to a new life, So also our old identity, our old way of living that has that strong pull towards slavery to sin has died. And we can receive the ability to live a new life when we come to Jesus through faith. And this is because Christ's submission to death has become our submission to death. And it recalls this idea from Romans chapter 5 that what Christ has done The benefits, the rewards roll down to all who become associated with him. So if you're here this morning and you have become associated with Jesus through faith, you are a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian, and that's the orientation of your life that you have chosen, then the death that Jesus died has become your death. And the life that he has lived, the life that he now lives, becomes yours. And this is a big point of connection with Paul's logic. I mentioned that throughout these chapters, he's contrasting the hope and life in Jesus with the sin and death of the world. And and this, this point of logic is that sin did what it could do to Jesus, and Jesus overcame it. We saw in Romans 5 that sin has the power to, do, to bring death. That's its power. That's the, that's the bullet in the gun of sin. It can bring death. And so when Jesus voluntarily gave his life on a Roman cross, he took the penalty of death that you and I deserved. And when he rose from the dead, it proved that Death could not hold him down. Sin had done all that it could do to him, and yet he lived. And now he continues to live in freedom from sin. And the same freedom that Jesus has, there's nothing more that sin can do, that's the freedom that you and I are invited into. But that can be a hard thing to get our minds around. And so I think... Maybe a, maybe a common, though poor, example is, is the idea of an employer uh, that we might have in this life. So several years ago, uh, I, was, I was fired from a job once. And the whole time I worked at this job, I was unsettled. I, I just, I, I felt like I couldn't trust my boss. I, I, the leadership decisions of that organization just always troubled me. And for the whole 
time period that I worked uh, at this place, I just felt like, man, how did I get myself into this situation? And, and how can I get myself out? Uh, it was just, it was just, you know, you've been in this situation maybe before. It's just an uncomfortable, unhealthy, bad work dynamic. Until one day I got called into a meeting and I was told that my job had been cut. And wow, that hurt. That was painful. If you've had that experience in your life, you know it's not something that you would choose. And I hope I learned some lessons about how I handled that situation to prevent getting in other situations like that in the future. It's not something that we would choose, but something else happened when it was all said and done. Something besides the pain and the frustration and the kind of the humiliation, it's embarrassing. But suddenly I felt free because that employer had done all that they could do to me. Once they cut my job, once they fired me, I mean, what else are they going to do? I was free, and suddenly that burden that I had been carrying for those years was gone. Now, I was broke, but I was free. So I continued to live, right? The, the, the only real leverage that employer had over me in my life was that employment. And once that employment was done, man, I could, I could make a new choice. I could serve a new master. There was nothing else that that master, that that employer, that that boss, that that organization could hold over me. And in a way, I think sin is like a bad boss in a dying organization. Sin's like a bad boss in a dying organization. It tries to bend your thoughts and actions to do what it wants. It makes you think that ignoring God and going your own way is the only way that you can make it. But in reality, sin knows that it's on its way to death and it wants to pull you down with it. Sin is like a bad boss. And ultimately, if you die without discovering the gift of life in Jesus, then sin is one. It's leveraged its power over you. But the freedom that we find in Jesus is that that power has already been exercised and been taken away. Jesus took the only leverage that sin had and broke it. So if we then become associated with Jesus, there is no more leverage. And we still live in a broken, corrupted, dying world that's under the boss of sin. But we can live in this world today and yet be free of the power that it has over us. We don't have to get pulled into those patterns any longer because Jesus has conquered that leverage. Jesus has conquered that power. Jesus has taken all that sin can do to you or me. He's purchased a freedom for us to live on a different plane. Sure, we still live in the same world as long as we live on this earth. But we don't have to serve the world's master. We can choose to serve a new master. And interestingly, all of this is symbolized in baptism. Paul says if you've been baptized into Jesus, then all of this is true for you. It's this idea of being initiated into a new association or relationship with Jesus. And that's why being baptized is such a significant thing. And I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you 
are associated with him by faith. You've asked for forgiveness of your sins and you're following after him, not perfectly, but sincerely, and you've not yet been baptized, I would encourage you, take advantage of this opportunity on August 27th. No matter what campus you're at, we're having baptism services to give you the opportunity to symbolize that freedom of serving a new master that's true in your life. When we follow righteousness as our master, then we have freedom to live a new life, one that's in unity with Jesus. And we see more. When we serve righteousness as our master, we're also free to experience eternal life today. Look in verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. When when Jesus rose from the dead and entered his eternal life, all who are associated with him enter eternal life along with him today that's eternal. He cannot die again. And the reality for us, if we're associated with Jesus, is that our eternal life has already begun. Sometimes we think of the benefits of life after death as we live this life, and then once we die, eternity begins in a relationship perfectly with God. But that's not the picture that we find in the Scriptures. When we come to faith, the moment that you become associated with Jesus and receive this gift of life, your eternal life has begun. So there's this overlap. If this is our physical life, we're born and then we die and we live in the interim on this planet, that's our physical life. We're all born, we will all die. That's life. But when we become associated with Jesus by faith, there's a moment in this life somewhere where eternal life begins. And even though one day our physical life will end, it will expire That eternal life will just continue and move on and move forward. And the difference it makes for us is that we can claim that freedom today. That's why it is not death to die for those who have come to Jesus by faith. Our eternal life has begun today and we can live in that experience. Finally, we're free when we become slaves to righteousness to receive the benefits of serving God. Verses 22 and 23 talk about the benefits of this voluntary servanthood when we choose to serve righteousness. It says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So in contrast to the benefits of slavery to sin, which are shame and guilt, the benefits of slavery to righteousness are holiness and eternal life. When we choose a new master, we choose a servanthood with benefits. But what it boils down to for us is which master will we choose? And this is at the forefront of Paul's thinking in this chapter as well. He asks a question two times in this chapter. He says, all right then, so, so what will we do? What are we going to do when we're presented with this choice of two masters? And we do have 
options. So we see the options before us that emerge in this chapter as well. Look in verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 15, he asks virtually the same question. All right, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Essentially, he raises the question. And he's talking to those who profess to be associated with Jesus, to have entered into serving a new master. And he says, all right then, are we supposed to continue living in the old way while professing a new faith? And in both places he says, by no means. By no means. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, or you cling to the one and despise the other. And yet the reality for so many of us is that if we're honest, we continue trying to serve two masters. And and the logic that shows up in, in verse one is that we think, oh, if we just keep on sinning, that just makes the grace and forgiveness of God look all that much better. It's like I know what I should do. I I know the transformation that should happen in my life, but I'll get to that. Because if if I really go all in and love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength and bring him into every corner of my life, then mm, that might get away, that, that, that might get in the way of getting ahead at work, or that might get in the way of some of the relationships and the plans that I have with my friends. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of keep some of this stuff in my life, but I know that God will forgive me, and his grace shows up, and in that way we kind of try to serve two masters. But Jesus says it should not be that way. The great leader Joshua in the Old Testament, when he was leading the Israelites into the land that God had provided for them, he said to his fellow Israelites, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so I would put that same challenge before all of us today. It could not be more clear that in this life, we're going to have to serve somebody. We can offer ourselves in service to sin. We can offer ourselves in service to righteousness. The choice is ours. The offer of life is there. But we must choose. And it's total commitment. I want to close with the challenge that Paul gives right in the middle of this chapter. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. It's total commitment. It's not just a general life orientation, but it's physically and emotionally and spiritually and mentally every part of our life being offered to this new master. And if you're here this morning and you've not made that choice, you've not 
come to Jesus by faith. I want to invite you to do that today. I'm going to lead us in a prayer as we close. And and if this expresses where you're at, you go, you know what? I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. I'm going to quit serving that master. Today is the day I'm going to choose a new master. I want to invite you in your heart, just silently pray this prayer along with me and receive the gift of life. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge our sin. I confess my sin to you and I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry for going my own way, for living in a way that ignores your love. But today I want to say thank you that Jesus died the death that I deserve. And I want to say please Come into my life. Transform me from the inside out. Teach me to serve a new master. Thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. Amen.